hello, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is, as you may have guessed, my podcast. Uh, we are joined here today uh, by a fantastic guest for a wonderful conversation, as usual. But first, uh, just, uh, you know, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the video. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a, um, a five-star review. We have nothing but five-star reviews, uh, nothing I ever expected to see before. It's pretty cool. Um, but just do me a favor to help this podcast and this channel grow. If you love it, please share it with your friends. If you hate it, please share it with your enemies. And now let's jump right into the show. So, you know, every once in a while, I uh, when I'm looking for new movies to watch, uh, I actually go back and look at old movies. I, I go back and look at uh, old uh, shows of Siskel and Ebert arguing about movies. It's one of my favorite things to do. And you often find a bunch of gems that they've recommended. Um, and I began to say to myself, why is it that I'm so drawn to these older movies? What is it about these older movies that uh, that really, really pull me in and that make them endure in, in a way that I don't feel like newer movies do? And now we're in an era where we have these social media platforms, we have these wide open uh, platforms and arenas where people can throw in their two cents. And they, uh, from my experience, have uh, exerted massive, massive influence. So I feel like 20 years down the line, people will be going uh, to channels like uh, my guest's channel and looking for movie suggestions. But I don't know if they'll find the uh, wealth of material that uh, we used to find in the Siskel and Ebert days. And so today we're gonna talk uh, with Mr. Critical Drinker, uh, AKA, well, should I call you Will? What should I call you? You can call me anything you like, my friend. I'm not going to do that. Don't, <laughs> don't give me that floor. But um, yeah, so uh, Critical Drinker is a very, very popular YouTube commentator uh, who's acerbic character uh, and, and just really uh, irreverent videos uh, are, are uh, making a man after my own heart. And I've been a, a fan of his for uh, a long, long time. And uh, I think he really, in a lot of ways, has his fingers on the pulse of popular cinema right now and, and speaks for a lot of people. Unfortunately, most of those people are not inside the entertainment industry, so they don't seem to be adjusting very, very well. That's my first question for you, uh, uh, Mr. Drinker, uh, or Will, or Susan, who knows? Uh, <laughs> what, what, you know, because you're, you're also an author, you're, you're passionate about storytelling, but what on earth prompted you to create the, the critical drinker? What was the inciting incident, so to speak? of the uh, critical drinker character in the first place? Oh, it was a strange one. I mean, I'd, uh, I first got my start in YouTube, must have been about 10 years ago, just making little videos here and there. And I hadn't really formed a character or anything yet. It was all just um, very matter of fact. Um, I, I left that behind because I got my publishing deals and I started to get into writing novels. And so that kind of took up all my time. But then I, eventually I decided to start getting back into it um, because I, I was not liking the way that, movies were going I wasn't uh particularly when it came to like franchises that I used to be a fan of things that I was really interested in um to see them brought back in the present day and um just really ruined for as far as I could tell you know they, they really disrespected a lot of um previous characters previous accomplishments and so on um and so I thought I, I've got to talk about this just Partly as a fan, partly as a storyteller and a writer, I, I think I can I can offer some kind of insight into this. Um, and it was I, I think one point um, when Captain Marvel was gearing up to release, and there was this big social media firestorm around that movie of 
um, you know, the, the character comes across as really unlikable and, and everyone was rushing to her defense and it was just becoming this huge um, argument. And some of the, the things that people were raising that, uh, well, we need characters like this. We need to have a strong female character in, in movies. And I just thought, that's utterly ridiculous. We've had that for, for decades now. And I thought, how can I get that point across in a way that's just a little bit different? And so I thought, I'm just going to be really sarcastic about it and i'm gonna um you know just uh praise her to the high heavens while at the same time showing all these great examples of of previous generations of characters that were far better written mm-hmm. um and for some reason it just made sense to to do it uh while i was a bit drunk uh, i had a few drinks before <laughs> i do it and uh it, it just came across as this drunken persona and man that video just took off um before i knew it it had half a million a million views and i my channel went from a few hundred subscribers to over ten thousand in a matter of days wow. um, and it's just been this crazy roller coaster since then really and i guess i thought to myself well this character seems to work pretty well uh, maybe i should keep doing that <laughs> so well it's, it's so fascinating to me because i see channels like yours or nerdrotics and all these other people who are who they they're really catching on in a really really big way and i i've contended for a long time that uh, there are far more people that agree with us than than uh, we are led to believe uh, in the entertainment industry and one of my contentions another one another of my contentions is that uh, these people it's not a contention it's it's just a fact is that these people who are in the industry um, are in fact not making shows for a broader audience they're making shows for themselves and i think that a lot of people uh, themselves and their peers and mm-hmm. i think a lot of people sort of get confused when they say well you know get get um when when we say we don't want uh, your politics in our films, it's not that the politics can't um, inform the writing or that, that they can't, you know, uh, you know, like, you know, I, I want to have an author with some kind of a, a worldview or writer with a worldview. I, I don't mind that. It's just that when the uh, when this particular worldview kind of supersedes the uh, the story craft, I think is where the problems come in. And so, like, on one hand, you know, I remember the the. Um, in the States, you would have this franchise called God's Not Dead. And it was, no, you know, an even better example. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Tyler Perry movies. Um, but for for those, uh, for foreign audiences who don't know, Tyler Perry is a black filmmaker who sort of made his own fortune. But one of the hallmarks of his movie, he's a deeply, deeply Christian man, which speaks to his base. Uh, and uh, oftentimes you will have a, a nonsensical plot uh, that is stopped cold uh, for someone to start preaching to Jesus. And I often liken that to a lot of, um, you know, I think about uh, the moment in Endgame, for instance, where the, the, the infamous, she has help, where we kind of stop, <laughs> we, we stop this climactic action scene and all of a sudden, all of the women characters are like a, 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 in the same place at the same time. Like, well, you know, if, if Thanos wants to wipe him out, he can do it right now because they're all, you know, clustered together. And, yeah. um, but, but it was, but I was like, okay, here's an example of them stopping the story cold, um, just to make a point about how women are fantastic. And it's like, well, nobody in the audience, well, virtually nobody needs to hear that women are great because I think most people think that already. And uh, it's just this example. Uh, yeah, that, I, uh, I would say, um, yeah, I think where it crosses the line most of the time is when you become very much aware that uh, you're just seeing the writer and the writer's views rather than the story. Um, and it's it's almost it's sometimes a difficult one to define, but it when it happens, it robs you of your ability to enjoy the story and to lose yourself into the in the fictional world. 
um, your suspension of belief, uh, sorry, yeah, your suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. kind of just vanishes in that moment. And you realize I'm just seeing the, the, the inner thoughts and the beliefs of the writer. And it's not wrapped up in a, a story. It's no longer under a veil of uh, fiction. All it is, <clears throat> is just them preaching to me. Uh, and that's when it takes you out of the story. And that's what you see more and more now, because it's a combination of the writer's having more and more extreme political views that they try to get across and having less and less skill to be able to disguise it. And so those two things combined for me, is just killing modern movies. Well, and the, the skill I think is going to keep, is going to keep um, being more and more corroded because, you know, in a lot of our, I mean, even in my, uh, in my actor training, um, back in the day when when I was sort of a member of the blue congregation as we call it uh, as I call it here in the states um, it's it um, you know I was complaining that it felt like the our training program was a bit too eurocentric and that was back in the um, the early 2000s the early aughts and now or the mid aughts I should say and now it's gone to another extreme where I said well we have to we have to decolonize the curriculum and take everything out so we're not going to look at the Greek masters by the way masters is a racist term we're not going to look at Shakespeare uh, but it's like okay well I, you know I I don't love that Shakespeare uses um, certain language, uh, but it, I also understand that it's a reflection of the belief systems of that particular time. And if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, then we're robbing ourselves of all of this, um, all of the the lessons that the old people had to teach us, the ancients had to teach us, which we can build on as opposed to just saying, no, we're gonna break it down because unfortunately I don't feel like the people that are around now really quite have the ability to, uh, to accomplish and achieve what what uh, what the old the masters of old uh, achieved uh, themselves no i very much agree and i think that 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 phrase of throwing the baby out with the bathwater is the perfect example of when it comes to assessing um, classic literature or works of, of previous decades previous centuries even um, i think most of us nowadays are sensible enough to recognize yep there's going to be some antiquated terms here words um, things that are racially or sexually insensitive or whatever. It's just the nature of the time in which it was made. But you can divorce yourself from that and say, well, there's still a fundamental truth to whatever piece of fiction it is that you're dealing with here. And like you say, the the, the wisdom that's usually imparted by stories like that, uh, it's worth listening to, even if you don't always like the, the finer details of how it's conveyed. And, you know, when you, you talk about um, the experiences of the people that write stuff like this, um, the, the example that I give is franchises like Star Trek, for example. The, the, the original series from back in the 60s, a lot of the writers who were involved in that had served in the military in, the, in World War II or Vietnam or a lot of these places. It had given them a huge amount of experience of, one, uh, the, the things like the chain of command and how a military organization works um, and how people relate to each other in, in high-pressure situations. Um, and two, just general maturity about life. But when you look at it now, the people who are writing it, probably the most hardship they've ever had is like someone got their Starbucks order wrong one day or, or someone misgendered them on Twitter. Like that's not comparable. And it's like they don't have that same well of experience to draw on and it shows in what they produce. 
Well, you know, what's fascinating is that there was an article, it was in a, uh, some British periodical, actually, at least at least a decade ago, where they were complaining that uh, that acting in and of itself is becoming more of a posh profession. And I notice here in the States as well, I mean, pretty much um, a lot of your favorite movie stars, a lot of your favorite actors, I mean, I'm looking at, um, you know, people like Adam Driver or... Um, uh, the, the new Monica Rambeau, which is a woman named Tiona Paris, who was at Juilliard in Adam Driver's class. And, um, you know, so, or uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who was at Yale, who was in The Eternals, or uh, Kang the Conqueror, I think his name, I forgot what his name is. He's also a Yale actor. So you have all these actors, or Sterling Brown, Mahershala Ali, who's going to play Blade, um, who went to NYU grad uh, acting, which is my alma mater. You have all these people who are coming from these top acting institutions and, cons and conservatories, which are prohibitively expensive to go to. And what what I'm beginning to notice is that uh, increasingly here as well, it's it's a reflection of what you were just talking about, where you have people who come from a certain um, sort of privileged, sort of bourgeois background, and that informs their experiences. Where you know, it's just I, I get the sense of that as well. It's like I don't know if people have ever really suffered any real hardship. If you've ever really been poor, uh, I'm talking I'm talking about the writers uh, mainly, as opposed to to the actors themselves. Because I mean, one of the cool things about acting is that you know we're all at the, at the casino, and um, anyone can can um, can win. All of it. All oftentimes it's about staying around long enough until your competition either goes away or dies. But uh, <laughs> now it's. You know, I look at these writers and I'm thinking to myself, I just, you, you seem so insulated, not only from hardship, but also what actually makes human beings tick and connect to each other. And that's what I feel like is at, at, uh, at the core that's missing in a lot of these modern stories right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a, in Hollywood, there's a degree of nepotism. You know, you get these people who are like second or third generation um writers or actors or entertainers or whatever and they, they got in there essentially because daddy did really well in this field and so he's able to make connections for them and get them in and that's what you end up with um, and it's people who didn't have to struggle and strive um, but yeah like you, you, I don't know go back 40-50 years um, and a lot of these actors that, that went on to become like the, the A-list stars the, the, of their day they came from dirt poor backgrounds, yeah. you know, and they, they, they just kind of fell into acting because it was, you know, something that they did. But I don't know, it, it feels like nowadays things just happen less organically because the whole movie industry now is um, so much more corporatized, so much more controlled and safe and, um, and you know, focus group tested. Um, whether it's the scripts, whether it's the, the amount of money that's put into them, whether it's all the way down to the, the people behind and in front of the cameras that they pick. It's all safe bets. It's all people that come from tried and tested backgrounds um, so that you can produce just a reliable product that you can keep churning out. Um, and it just, I don't know, it feels like acting and, and the whole movie industry, you know, go back to the, the 60s and the 70s. It was much more chaotic and much more organic. You could have little movies on, done on a budget of half a million dollars that would go on to massive success just through pure luck. I just don't feel like you get that now. Well, you know, there's there's a great book um, by a guy named Marcus Flanagan called One Less Bitter Actor. And one of the big um, one of the big takeaways from that book is how people are hired, how actors are specifically hired in the first place. And it's never it's very rarely 
the person who is the the best actor. It's the actor that people feel the most comfortable with hiring. And mm -hmm. so when you add ideological, you know, uh, rigidity on top of that, it's not just people who are like they're they're nice and shiny and they they'll never cause any problems and they won't, you know, clash with the director, which is the people the kind of artists that you want are the people that are going to go head to head and, and fight for different moments, fight for different um, elements of the character and, you know, we you, you come together. I mean, Warren Beatty once said that if everyone's having a good time, it's not going to be any good. And yeah. you have to go out of your way to, you know, be a jerk or anything, but you, you, you want a little bit of friction in the creative process. But now increasingly, there is a great letter. Um, it was attributed to Arthur Penn. Uh, Arthur Penn, uh, probably most famous for movies like uh, uh, the Warren Beatty bar, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. But, um, you know, he, he wrote this letter about uh, how there's too much niceness now. Uh, and and uh, he, was, he was talking about theater specifically, but he said, you know, I went to go see a show and I just, I saw a performance by this one actor and I just wasn't moved or impressed at all. And I spoke to the director afterward about why he gave this particular actor this job. And he said, you know, uh, I, I have never had a problem with this actor. I, I didn't have one argument during the rehearsal process. And, you know, it was just this idea that everybody wants to be, to use your term, safe. Everyone wants to be protected. Everyone wants to avoid conflict. And what that does, I think, is that it, you know, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with the old masters, but they were, they were connected to life and the vicissitudes of life in a way that I think a lot of that we're insulated from because of technology and our, and our comfort and privilege. And back in the 60s, I mean, I'm thinking about uh, when you were talking, I was thinking about actors like, uh, you know, like Cary Grant, aka Archibald Leach, who grew up poor, uh, Marlon Brando grew up poor. Um, Jimmy Stewart, I mean, he was a conservative. He fought in the war, for God's sakes. Yeah. And, um, and so there was a, a, a different sort of a vibe now, as opposed to people who grow up in, you know, from coming from suburb, suburbia or whatever. And um, I'm like, you know, there's just no, there's no edge about you anymore. And I just don't, I, I, I there, you know, or, or there's a soul or a certain kind of oomph that's lacking. And, and I think a lot of us sense that. Yeah. And I, you know, I guess a lot of that is down to like the actors not having that that kind of life experience and not having that drive and that, uh, well, the edge that you talk about that it gives you when you've experienced real hardship. You can just tell that there's a toughness about certain people and it comes through. Um, one, of, one of the examples I've given before, which I just think is great, is um, Sean Connery, the, the very first guy to play James Bond on screen uh, or on the big screen, should I say. Um, he was he was a milkman. Um, and, mm. and a, a model um, and a, a bodybuilder of like before he got into this role like that was basically his first big acting role and he was just discovered through luck um, and the the original author of the books hated him thought he was completely wrong for the part but the producer just saw something in him um, and he said nope this is perfect and when you know he got cast and you know he's still regarded as like the best guy who ever played James Bond yeah um you know, just little little chance things like that, and I just feel like things like that wouldn't happen now. Um, well, you know, it, it it reminds me of this story of how Dustin Hoffman got cast in The Graduate, which was his breakout film. Um, there's a great book called um, I don't know if you've read it, but it's called Pictures at a Revolution, and um, it's a brilliant, brilliant book which looks at the Oscar season of 19 I want to say 68, 69 thereabouts, and it looks like it looks at each of the best uh, the each of the five best picture nominees for that year, and how how they were how they were a reflection of old Hollywood versus new Hollywood. So new Hollywood, you had films like uh, like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, uh, Sidney Poitier's uh, uh, In the Heat of the Night, um, and uh, and The Graduate. And then on the other side, you had uh, it was it was again Sidney Poitier and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. 
And also um, Dr. Doolittle, this musical, which was like, like everybody's like, why the fuck is this even here? Like, this is, doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And um, so they, they write, and what the brilliant thing about the book is that it goes into all the, the key players behind who were, you know, who, who was making and producing the films and all the politics and the industry, which haven't really changed that much today. And uh, so they tell the story about Dustin Hoffman. Well, first of all, this other actor who they wanted, wh who was the archetype, which, which the, um, the author of the novel sort of had written, the sort of all-American, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, athletic, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I forgot who the other actor was that they, that they tested for this role, but he was perfect. And he said, and uh, the, I forgot which producer or writer was talking, maybe it was the director, Mike Nichols, but he said, this, this actor came in and gave the best performance, the, gay, the best audition I have ever seen in my life. Then Dustin Hoffman comes in, he's nervous, he's fidgety, you know, he, he's like panicking on the inside. I mean, it was a, the, the, the audition was just really, really, really a bad experience for him. And he came away being like, well, you know, I'm a piece of shit. You know, I mean, actors were, all, were very self-critical anyway. But uh, what they said was that, you know, when he was when Dustin was on camera, there was something about him that was so unpredictable and so kinetic and you just didn't know what he was going to do. And when and they had to fight for him to say, we want him as the lead in this movie, because there was something about him that was, you know, even though it wasn't a good audition, it was a memorable audition. And so the mm -hmm. question for me becomes, you know, who, if we're so obsessed with safety, um, why, you know, who, who now do we have who has the wherewithal to A, even allow themselves to be that sort of raw and, and, um, and uh, messy in their auditions uh, versus, um, you know, again, hiring the safest actor. And it also kind of makes me wonder, um, you know, and you referenced this in one of your videos about the, uh, you know, are there, any, are there any real stars anymore? And my contention is um, in, the current, uh, in the current machine, there are not, but what's your point of view about that? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think the last one that we've really got left, um, who's still a, a viable box office draw is, is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. You know, the, the, the example that everyone keeps giving, but he's the guy who's got the power still to make movies the way he wants them done. Whereas mm -hmm. every other actor pretty much today is just hamstrung by whatever the studio demands. Like they don't get a say in it. Um, and I, I think that comes across in what he does. Like when he did um, Top Gun Maverick, great example of if this had been put into the hands of a different director and he had less um, control creatively over it, Maverick would have just been a sad old man who would have got humiliated by someone who was younger and, and better and whatever. And it would have just all been about showing that the past is, is irrelevant now mm -hmm. um, and we need to move on from it. But I think Tom Cruise, whether it's his ego, whether it was his creative instinct, was, was more just, nope, yeah, he's still good at what he does. This is still his movie. Uh, he's not quite ready to walk off into the sunset yet. And what we've ended up with a film that's, I don't know, I think it's about $750 million. People absolutely love it. It's nothing but positive word of mouth around the whole thing. It's probably going to end up $900 million, maybe a billion dollars it's going to make. Um, people still want movies like that, but not many people can get them made now. Um, and it's a real shame. Uh, it's, it's the end of an era, it really is, because he's not going to be around that much longer as an A-lister. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I said that there's like a cutoff point. I feel like maybe guys like uh, maybe like Idris Elba, you know, Chris Pratt, maybe are kind of kind of like the last of a, of a young, uh, the last generation of maybe. But, you know, when I when I talk to people, I, I ask them, OK, can you think of a a star under like 40 who or, or an actor under 40 who when you hear their name, 
um, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, I have to go and see this because that's, that particular actor is in it. And it's not like that anymore. And on top of that, you know, someone pointed out to me, well, you know, all these quote unquote stars now, they have social media accounts or whatever. It's like, well, okay, well, that means then, then they are competing with the rest of us for attention. And so now it's that you have this huge sort of decentralized uh, machine or system as it were, where we're learning that, A, we have all this access that we didn't really have before to these quote unquote celebrities. And we're finding now that they're not quite as interesting or as mysterious uh, or, or as, uh, or, or frankly, as smart uh, as we may have. Well, I don't know if anyone ever thought actors were smart in the past, but, or, or as um, just as interesting as we, as they thought they were before. And there's too much access now, but now it's like, okay, well, if you, you can be, uh, you know, you can be someone who says, I am going to strap on a pair of leggings and uh, film myself doing squats in front of a camera. And I can get just as many uh, followers and, and as much influence as Michael B. Jordan now. And so, you know, so in that era, so in that, in that way, there's, there's micro celebrities now. And I think it's part of the, you know, we, we don't really talk about stars anymore. We talk about YouTubers and podcasters now and TikTokers. It's, it's really sad, actually. And uh, I, I think it's that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt, and that's what you get with a lot of these stars. I think in the past, if you go back before the age of social media, um, there was always a certain divide between these actors and these, these celebrities and regular people. And yeah, you would get little insights into them occasionally when they did a, an interview, and it was usually mm -hmm. fairly controlled. And so it was almost like set up so they didn't say or do anything too stupid. <laughs> You know, there was always a few exceptions, but now when they've got just constant access to that that uh, that big dopamine hit of putting out a tweet there and getting ten thousand likes on it, it, it's too great a temptation. And so, much like we've all done, you know, maybe it's late at night, you're tired, or you've had a few drinks, and you just put down whatever thought pops into your head, and suddenly it's seen by thousands or millions of people potentially. And it could be the dumbest thing you've ever said. And there's no filter then, and there's no safeguards for them. And like you say, the more we see of them, the less we like them and the less we kind of respect them. I mean, and there's exceptions. Some of them are quite um, smart about how they do it. But a lot of the time, um, yeah, it just, it shines this weird mundane light on, on who they really are. And who they really are, a lot of the time, isn't very interesting. They are just people who are famous because they want you to be famous and there's not really a huge amount to to them underneath all of that um and yeah i think there's a lot to be said for maintaining a bit of mystique about yourself particularly when you're an actor um, and i've got a huge amount of respect for those actors who do just say not interested in social media i don't feel like i have to use it i'm just going to carry on doing my, my thing and that's it that's the way to do it i think well you know it makes me think about um about Denzel Washington, who whom I'm pretty sure is is completely not on the uh, the the quote unquote progressive train, and you know early on in his career he was doing all the kind of the tabloid thing, and he learned I think he learned his lesson, and um, you know but you never see his his dirty laundry splashed across the screen or whatever or or uh, across the pages of whatever tabloids you know he doesn't do that he just he focuses on what's important which is well to him it's just like family and um, and like God, and but also his work, and um, it's so it's so 
fascinating to me because it makes me think about back in the days of the studio system where they actually had teams of, of, uh, of publicity people to manage the, uh, the, public, uh, the public images and public personas of these actors and clean up after their messes. And now I'm thinking to myself, man, I would hate to be a PR person right now because how do you manage people when, when everything is so exposed? Yeah. Um, yeah, you just have to take their phone off them and say, no, you're not getting access to this after 8 p.m. or something. You know, and it's, I, I, I you know, I, I get it because I, I imagine they do still have extensive teams of people that, that try to manage their image, but like there's less um, control over them. And yeah, there's just, there's too much access. There's too much, um, there's too much insight into things that we just, we don't need to know. And I, I don't really understand this this need that they have to share everything and to especially to leap on political bandwagons like they they must recognize that whatever side you come down on politically you're going to you're going to piss off like half your audience and half your fans and it's just so unnecessary um I think it was I think it was Taylor Swift who for a long time she just said I'm not going to ever talk about my political beliefs it's not important it's not necessary particularly because she did like country singing at the time. And it's like, that's just going to, that's just going to rile up a lot of her fans to say that she supports this party or that party. You just don't need to do it. But you eventually, a lot of the time they cave because they come under more and more scrutiny. And there's always that assumption, I think, with these people that if you don't give your political beliefs, whoa, you must be on, you must be on the wrong side, you know, and we, we've got to get that out there. And so they, they end up just having to cave and, and, um, and say what they're expected to say, I suppose. Well, this is what I mean when I say that uh, these people now, they're making movies for their peers. And, you know, I have people who, who, who contact me privately who don't believe any of this crap. And, uh, and, and you know, if, if, if people want to go back and, and see how long, at least how long it's been going on. Well, first of all, there, there's a great sort of uh, uh, snippet that I heard from like John Wayne back in the 70s where he's talking about, you know, the commies are taking over Hollywood. <laughs> but uh, there's a fa fascinating interview. I don't know if you've seen it with with Andrew Breitbart, and he's talking about um, uh, he's talking about the the toxic atmosphere in Hollywood and how people. And this was at least um, I don't know when he died, but it was far, more than a decade ago. Where he's talking about you know these these quote unquote liberals. I say quote unquote all the time now, or quote unquote progressives, who are so vicious if you don't. Uh, if you don't kowtow to exactly what they they want to the extent now where there's a group and I can't even I don't even want to put them out there but there's a group of like conservative actors producers yada 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 um, who have like a secret sort of underground group now that you have to be invited to join and there's some pretty big names in it but one of the tenets of the group is that uh, outside of having to be invited you you can never it's like fight club you can never talk about yeah. this particular thing and I'm, and and for me I, I understand it but i also get kind of pissed off because well that's really part of the problem that people are so terrified now that, that they don't speak up and but at the same time it's hard to it's difficult to understand the social pressure when you're in, say, you know, it's a meet and greet, everybody's on set, or you're in a rehearsal studio, you know, in, the, in its first day, and they say, okay, everybody, we're going to go around the room and say our names and, and, what, and uh, what role we're playing in the production, and also don't forget to add your pronouns. And so then you're like, okay, am I going to be the person who was like, the one person who's like, I'm not going to, I've managed like, to weasel my way out of these situations, but increasingly it's just, it's, you know, when you begin to see casting breakdowns that say, uh, uh, you know, masculine presenting 
you know, male, female, you know, and it's like, okay, well, it's, it's, it's taking over. And I know most people don't really agree with this stuff. They don't really see eye to eye with this stuff, but they go along with it because I mean, the, the great uh, comedian Patrice O'Neill said this, there's this, this machine that, that shits people out. But the thing is when you're in the belly of the beast, uh, after you've been chewed up, you're making a million dollars a week. So you have all these people lining up, you know, just to, to, to get into it. So there's always somebody else and people just want to, you know, they want to be a part of the, they want to be in the party, but uh, there's so many, there's so uh, many incentives to just uh, keep peddling nonsense. And so I don't know if the, uh, if the, uh, the machine can be repaired uh, at any sense at this point. Not with a, a wholesale purge, I guess, of, of, all of these people within the industry and i don't think they can do that at this point they would they would alienate too many people um but yeah i mean it's 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 a really sad thing that an actor would essentially end their career by saying you know i'm a republican or whatever and that would be that would be it for them because it would be in most cases unless they're a super big name where they've got so much brand recognition that they they still are a box office draw if you were a young actor and you were to make an admission like that you just wouldn't get hired for things in future and that's that's your career over so i can totally understand why people in that vulnerable stage of their career who don't really have the the power to resist it are just going to go along with it because it's easier um and it's it's you know for them it's not worth sacrificing their their future over yeah i mean this this is the point that uh, that breitbart was making he's like name an actor under this is, you know, again, over a decade ago, but name an actor under like 40 or whatever, who is open, openly conservative. And you, you just can't, I mean, now, I mean, I can think of guys like Bruce Willis or Kelsey Grammer. Um, and again, I think Denzel Washington is very conservative, but he just doesn't come out and, and, and say it. And, um, but anyone under that age, I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, good, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be committing a seppuku with your, with, uh, with, with your career, but Switching gears a little bit, um, you as a storyteller, I'm, I'm wondering, and this is something I've been wondering as well, is that, uh, I mean, what is it that um, that has made, that, that made these popular franchises like Star Trek, like Star Wars, um, Indiana Jones, I mean, I discovered the Indiana Jones and the Star Wars trilogies back to back when I was like nine or 10 years old, just blew my fucking mind as a little <laughs> boy. Um, I mean, what is it that you think make these, makes these, um, have made these franchises endure and catch on in the first place and then and and wh what do you think is missing from them um um now that 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 they're like what what is that magic that's gone now I mean, i'm trying to figure it out myself the magic that they had was timelessness because you know indiana jones is locked into a fairly specific time period it's set in the 1930s right. you know he's fighting nazis and stuff and um, actual nazis yeah like yeah not the kind of people that disagree with you on twitter but um right. Yeah, you know, that that should, on the face of it, be really kind of specific and, and um, you know, difficult for people of our generation now to relate to because we didn't know about any of that stuff. We didn't fight in the war or anything like that. But it's an adventure story at its heart. It's about a person, you know, seeking out treasure and, and you know, going into, like, big, you know, ruins, um, you know, temples and avoiding traps and everything like that. It's it's just a classic adventure story with with. Mm -hmm. Uh, femme fatales and with evil bad guys and action scenes and everything it's just the kind of thing that we can always enjoy and it was based on older stories like adventure serials from the 1940s and 50s so already there's a timelessness established with something like that where it's it's an it's a set of movies from the 80s based on ideas from the 40s and 50s then when you've got something like star wars 
it's the classic example of the hero's journey. It's it's a fantasy premise ultimately that a, a uh, you know a young um, adventurer has to go off, save the princess, defeat the evil villains, topple the the um, empire that's trying to like take over everything, um, and and you know put himself through um, all kinds of trials along the way. Classic. Um, story that goes back to the earliest days of storytelling uh, but it's always all they do is they put it wrapped it up in a, in a kind of science fiction setting and so that's the thing that makes these things work they are timeless they are classic stories that we could relate to 50 100 years from now people will still be able to get them and enjoy them the difference now is that they try to make them reflect the world we live in today. I, I think that's one of my most hated phrases because you see it all the time when they're trying to push some garbage new product, like they're doing it with the new Lord of the Rings TV show where they say, yeah, the original was good, but we need to make it reflect the world we live in today. And it's just code for, I'm going to shove all of my modern day political beliefs into this thing and just hope that it works somehow. So you take something that was timeless and you make it specific to where we are today. Uh, and where we are today is divided and, and angry at each other and nobody understands each other. And so inherently you've got something that's not going to age. That's the difference, I think, in storytelling now. Well, I, I say that now people aim for timeliness, but not timelessness. Yes. And they don't seem to really understand the difference. And, uh, you know, it's funny that they talk about the world of today. But the thing is, I mean, the, the economist Thomas Sowell, he said, uh, you know, nothing is as old as the idea that something is new. And I think what these people miss about the world today, first of all, they're very disconnected from the world of today. I mean, if you've, if you've ever been to Los Angeles or New York City, they, they are their own uh, there are they there they are their own ecosystems which are disconnected from uh, from the rest of the the planet. Even in New York City, all you have to do is travel just a little bit upstate out of the city, uh, to find you'll begin to find how red uh, uh, or I guess you could say you know conservative um, and sort sort of blue collar salt of the earth uh, their their neighbors are. But of course, uh, the Manhattanites themselves uh, think think of themselves as, as you know, uniquely brilliant and educated and sophisticated and, and cultured in a way that everyone else is not. But the thing about the world of today is that it's populated by people. And the thing about people is that uh, even though they may live in the world of today, what has motivated people, and you only get this when you begin to read classical literature, is what motivates people today is are the same things that have motivated them for thousands and thousands of years. So I think what these people tend to forget is that, okay, you try to reflect the world of today, well, really, it's really sort of a, a, a far left vision of a utopian vision of what the world should be is what they're really saying. Um, but it, it's totally devoid of the these classic um, human motivators and emotions. I mean, uh, there is a great classicist named Victor Davis Hanson that I spoke to. And he said the thing about these, a classic, what makes a classic a classic is that it, it, it attacks these sort of universal human themes in a really novel and interesting and powerful way. And um, I, I wish that we could visit upon these these writers and creators that you know they can put all kind racial minorities, sexual minorities, or whatever in these stories. People, it's not going to make a difference if they're not going back to the core root of who of who humanity is. But then it comes back to 
another problem with their ideology, which is they have to deconstruct everything. And there's no sort of solid, solid foundation, um, even archetypal foundation on which to base people if you don't think anything is really, if you're a subjectivist who doesn't really think anything is really um, real or, or, or solid, you know what I mean? I, I agree 100%. And that's one of the things that drives me the most insane when it comes to, to modern movies is the deconstruction of the classic hero. Because mm. not only is it in, immensely disrespectful to the characters and the work that were done by previous generations of storytellers, like, the, you know, the, the easiest example I can give to people would be a character like Luke Skywalker, who was mm. your classic hero, went on the hero's journey, um, learned a lot about himself, went through great hardships in the original movies, um, triumphed ultimately, and became a stronger, wiser, better person at the end. He transformed into the true hero. When do, when we pick up with him 30 years later, he's just a miserable old guy living on an island who's wanting to die. Um, can't do anything anymore. doesn't want to try anything. He is a nihilistic nightmare. Um, and that is the, the this deconstruction of this archetypal hero but it's done he's he's only included in this movie because it makes money because people they know that people are going to go and watch the film because it's got luke skywalker in it so it's like it's this weird cynical combination of wanting to destroy the thing that you're simultaneously exploiting to make money and get people's attention and that is just so awful it's so cynical it's so cold and it's so selfish uh, it, it's what drives me nuts. Um, I can I can live with people just making their own original stories with new characters and having them be crap. Fine, you know you you, you came up with an idea and it wasn't a good one. I don't care. Um, but when you use the work of other people as a stepping stone to get you to a level of success that you absolutely don't deserve because of your own creativity, uh, that's when I have a problem. That's what that's what I talk about so much in my channel. Well, it is. And just as a, as a, as an actor, quote unquote, of color, I mean, it's, which is a racist statement in and of itself, but it's, it's really, uh, it's really galling to me to see what I call hand-me-down franchises where that, where they will, they will take the work that someone else has done. I mean, I mean, I'm not that familiar, um, really not familiar at all with, with Tolkien's work, but when I see uh, people who look like me, who are sort of injected into it, and this, this is one of my great fears that I've voiced uh, several times is that now I feel like there's going to be a reflexive pushback, a reflexive rejection by audience members when they see performers who are not, ironically right uh, when they see performers who are not white they're not going to say oh that that actor is there uh, because of their appeal and their and whatever gifts they have I mean that again that, that's a previous generation right you know that that's the generation of Samuel L. Jackson Lawrence Fishburne James Earl Jones Alfre Woodard uh, Viola Davis um, Denzel Washington so on and so forth. Uh, Billy D. Williams is another great example, although he never took off the way he should have, I think. Um, but now it's like, well, they're only there because uh, they're trying to make, it's, it's a bunch of white, quote unquote, progressives trying to make themselves feel better. And then you have these uh, these performers who, um, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the Tony Awards last night, uh, the, the basically the American theater version of the Oscars were, were last night. And I, I said to myself, it's going to be, uh, it's, I guarantee you it'll be an evening where a bunch of, um, a bunch of uh, racial and sexual minorities will be festooned with trophies uh, for no other reason than that uh, white progressives want to feel better about themselves and feel like they're doing the right thing. It will have nothing to do, little if anything to do, with the, the, the merits of the material. And like you were saying before, it's a very, 
And this theme has come up several times on, on this show, but it's, it's a very nihilistic and cynical worldview. Um, it's a reflection of, um, I mean, this idea that the past has to die, you have to kill it if you have to. Um, that, you know, we know that they, they have an apocalyptic sort of worldview of the future and how everything is going down the tubes. And that, I think that reflects itself into the, in, in the writing. But I know when I saw what I, I gave, I gave The Force Awakens two chances. And I, you know, f full disclosure, I mean, I've, I've met J.J. Abrams, he, he, he was a good dude to me. But uh, and I, I saw when, when Ray mastered the Jedi mind trick in like one scene, I said, bullshit. Yeah, Fuck this movie, <laughs> Fuck this movie, it took Luke, Luke Skywalker lost his he lost his family. He lost his mentor. He lost a hand. He found out his dad was like the most evil motherfucker in the galaxy. And yet, and it, so by the, so by the, when he, when he steps up in the return of the Jedi and he, you know, and he does the whole, like, you know, you will take me to Jabba the Hutt now. And I was like, Oh snap, this man is full form now. But it was so satisfying because you had that whole journey that you're talking about, that hero's journey of, yeah. of strife and struggle. But Ray never had that. I mean, Ray is sitting there. She, she's beating Kylo Ren in a lightsaber duel i'm like kylo ren is trained what what happened like you, you just you you've undercut everything it's so it was so strange to me and i just said i just i can't i can't i can't do this franchise anymore i've, I've watched more rants about the last jedi than i actually have and i've never seen the film yeah. <laughs> I just, I just said, you do know. yourself a favor just don't watch it you'll be a happier man um but yeah i mean it, it's um it's a theme that i've touched on a lot that um you know the strength of a character is is kind of defined by the obstacles and the the challenges that they have right. to overcome um whether those challenges are internal to them or or big external threats or whatever but the point is it, they have to struggle and they have to fail sometimes and, and learn a little bit about themselves in order to pick themselves up and eventually succeed and that's what gives you the big emotional payoff that makes you bond with a character mm -hmm. and if they don't have that there's nothing to bond with this is like you you said it yourself like when ray just kind of has all these skills that she needs because the plot needs her to do it at that time uh where's the sense of accomplishment she didn't struggle to learn any of this stuff she just knows how to do it why do I, why do i care about her because i know that she's just going to win everything anyway well you know it, it comes back to this idea of of struggle and struggle and triumph and if we um if we revisit the theme of uh, these professions being more dominated by by posh or privileged people, as we might call them, uh, call them here. Um, I mean, I spoke to um, Ignat Solzhenitsyn, the son of the great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, recently, and he talked about. And I asked him about about what is it that makes that has made uh, Russian artists so singularly great, um, from novelists to composers to painters and so on and so forth. And he said, you know, well, Russian history is not rife with uh, with lollipops and candy canes. It's a very, very difficult. It's a very, very tough um, history. And that sort of grit, that sort of um, when you're grounded in struggle and pain like that, it really it, it what it does is that, you know, it's like sort of diamonds being forged in, under great pressure. And I think that when you have an absence of that kind of struggle and, and that kind of grit, it really um, it, it really removes a lot of edge from a lot of uh, the work that we see today. And, and I, I, I've been trying to put my finger on just what uh, about um, on what it is that's been missing. Maybe that that is what it is, the sense of like, I don't know what struggle is. I'm going to invent struggles or, or I'm going to intellectualize the idea of what a struggle really is, even though I've never really experienced it myself. You know what I think has changed? It's that uh, 
the the moral of so many movies um, in previous decades was of of um, self improvement. You know that you might start off your your journey, your adventure, your story, whatever, as a a flawed person, a weak person, whatever. Um, you need to you need to rise up to the whatever challenges presented to you. You need to become a better person um, through the struggles that you um, that you overcome. Um, and eventually that's the, the the real success there. You know, the the, the best example I ever, ever got of this was was Rocky, the original Rocky, mm. because he doesn't win his fight. He loses. But it doesn't matter. What was important to him as a character and as a person was he just wanted to go the distance and prove that he could get up when he gets knocked down and not give up because no one had ever managed to do that against uh, Apollo Creed, the champion before. That was his success, and it only came through great struggle, great hardship, um, and great suffering on his part throughout this the movie and the fight and everything. Awesome, great story. He didn't need to win the fight to win as a person. But the, mm. the theme that you get now so much in movies is that you're great the way you are. You don't need to, you don't need to struggle and you don't need to try and improve yourself. The rest of the world needs to learn to accept you as you are. That is a horrible lesson to teach people because if there's no incentive to improve yourself, you're never going to know what you're capable of doing because you're never going to really try. You're never going to exert yourself. What a, what a terrible thing to spread over an entire society. I just have a bunch of lazy, complacent um, narcissists who think that the rest of the world should just reconfigure itself to, to suit them and everyone else should just uh, accept them for what they are. That's not how the world works. And it's just, it's a crap lesson to teach people. And it's so often put forward in movies now. And I, I despair for what it's going to teach, you know, people who are just little kids now. What are they going to teach them? And what are they going to take into the world when they have to get out there and, and actually uh, make something of themselves? That's well, the difference for me. It, well, it goes back. And I think people can really sense that and they become resentful of it. And this is what I fear is driving, uh, is going to drive more alienation from, you know, various racial or sexual minorities when they see them in these lead roles. Um, because I think people are going to know that they aren't there off based off of merit. They were there because they complained uh, enough. And um, I, I think there's this, it goes back into this idea about what you were talking about with Captain Marvel. Um, you know, there is a story there of, uh, of uh, a young woman you know, I, I think people would have been really excited to see the story of a young woman in a male-dominated world, maybe, um, who has to learn how to believe in herself and has to learn how to kind of pull herself up and triumph over, you know, I, I, I really think people would have accepted a story of, um, of maybe a biased or sexist sort of world, which, you know, it, in which she came up, uh, came up in and triumphed in. Um, but unfortunately, it's, if she's already fully formed and she's already amazing and we have to, and you know, it's, it's uh, they're telling us, not showing us that she's amazing. Um, it, it just, there's no sort of growth there. We can't really get invested in it because it, it's, it, it's not a reflection of our lives as people. It's not a reflection of the human condition and the human experience. I mean, every day is a struggle for most of us, you know? And um, I, I think that's, we, we look for the flaws and the cracks in characters. We don't want to see a, a perfect, shiny, fully formed human being. I, I think that's, and that's not how life works. And it's going to be, and I, I think the, my, my, one of my big concerns is that, um, 
you know, especially with if as a writer, I, I feel like it's it's really limiting and and constraining for writers coming up because they know now that if they cast someone who looks like me in a role, if they cast a gay person, if they cast a trans person, they can or a woman, they can never have that character struggle in any meaningful way. That character can never have any meaningful flaws. Even a show like The Wire, HBO's The Wire, which featured drug dealers, uh, you know, uh, hustlers of all sorts, all these criminals, but the, the, these characters had so much dimension and the show never insulted your intelligence. I feel like a show like that would never be made today because, oh, you know, why you have all these black people in the ghetto? And it's like, well, they're they're often smarter than the police. And that's what that's one of the reasons the show is so fascinating to watch. But but you can't have any flaws now because these people because of uh, grievances from the past and you can't you can't ever um, show these people at their um, at their worst. I mean, Viola Davis made this point years ago when she was nominated for the uh, for the help. Uh, she was talking to a guy named Tavis Smiley and and uh, Tavis was like, you know, I, I'm glad you, that you're nominated, but uh, I just I got a problem with what you're nominated for. And for those who don't remember, The Help was a movie. It was a really bad movie written uh, based on a really bad book written by a white woman about these black maids uh, in in the in the Jim Crow um, in Jim Crow America. And um, kind of the uproar was like, you know, here's Viola Davis, who's a Juilliard trained like theater actor, like she's put in the time and the work, but now she's only being nominated for playing a maid, yada, yada, yada. And she kind of put Tavis in his place where he was like, yeah, I'm sort of, I don't like what you're being uh, nominated for. And she goes, she goes, that idea. And he's like, yeah, yeah. She goes, is killing black artists. Because, uh, you know, if you, if you, she, she goes, if you had said to me that you had a problem with the way the character was written, um, and you didn't really believe them in terms of how their motivations or whatever, that would be one thing. But if you're just telling me that I don't like it because this character's playing a maid and happens to be black, you know, then that then that's something else altogether. We we have to be able to explore the full our full range of emotions, our full range of humanity, and that means the ugly stuff too. And a lot of quote unquote political correctness is this idea to kind of shove to the side unpleasant realities that we just don't like. And I think that goes back into this lack of grit, this lack of, of connection with struggle that uh, that we were talking about before. Yeah, I, I think what you get now is an increasingly long list of rules that writers have to conform mm. to. And the more constraints you put on artistic freedom, the less, well, the more the quality of what you finally produce is going to decline because you are, you're working under constraints um, and it, it, it kills your ability to tell a good story. And um, yeah, like the example you gave there was perfect. And it's gotten to the point now where if I'm watching any kind of mainstream movie, if it's something produced by Disney, especially if there's a character of a certain gender or ethnicity or whatever, uh, I can pretty much guarantee what their role will then be in the story. Like I can guarantee mm -hmm. what, what plot threads are going to come out of it. Like if they're presented initially as a villain, I know they're not going to be, they're going to turn out to be a secret hero after all, or they're going to have been manipulated into what they were doing by someone more evil than them. And they're, they're secretly a really good person underneath it all. Uh, and again, if you're at the stage where you can literally predict the story because of, of how characters have been cast, you got a real problem with your storytelling. And uh, people can definitely sense that. Well, uh, well, Susan, I know that we are <laughs> we're at the end of our time. We have some more. Uh, it, it's an inside joke, friends. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you're coming up at the uh, the the end of your time. I wish we we had a little bit more time together. But perhaps we can do it again in the future. How can people find and support you? Uh, not only your YouTube channel, but you're you're actually a prolific writer as well, which I wish I'd uh, spoken to you more about. Maybe perhaps next time we'll get more into into your novels. But please please let, let people know how they can uh, find you and follow you and support you because you deserve all of those things. 
Thanks, man. Um, yeah, so my author name is Will Jordan, and I'm probably best known for writing the Ryan Drake series of action thrillers. Uh, you can find them on Amazon. The first one in the series is called Redemption. Um, I've also got a new book coming out, which is a standalone thriller uh, called Dark Harvest. So that's going to be out in North America in August, mid-August. So pretty excited about that. Hopefully it's going to be uh, hopefully it's going to be a success and people are going to enjoy it. But uh, yeah, that's the best way to find it. And um, yeah, as for, for talking about my writing, yeah, I'd be happy to come back sometime and we could maybe talk about the writing side of things. Let's do it, man. Well, um, I will steal your line and uh, just give a quick little send off and say that is all. Go away now. Bye bye, friends. Mm -hmm.